and welcome to another episode of My Pocket Psych, the podcast all about the psychology of the workplace. I'm Dr. Richard McKinnon. I'm a chartered psychologist and coach. And this time around, I'm joined by Lucy Ilbury, who is a fellow occupational psychologist and coach. And I'm really pleased to say is a new member of the extended work life psych associate team. So we're gonna, we are working together. Um, Lucy, it's great to have you on the team. Really great to have you on the podcast. How are you doing? Thanks so much, Richard. I'm really good. Thank you. Um, I've wanted to talk to you for a while um, on the podcast, so I'm, you know, I'm really, really delighted we found the time to do this. Um, would you mind starting by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself to put it all in context? Sure. Um, so as you kindly introduced me, I'm, I'm a chartered occupational psychologist, I'm a, a coach, and I'm also a PhD researcher. Um, I think I have so many different areas of interest in, in psychology. I've been working as a psychologist um, for about 10 years now, um, been in the talent assessment space for about 15, talent assessment and development. Um, and as I say, so many different areas of interest in psychology, but would probably boil it down to the psychology of learning and creativity. So how these really inherent human tendencies that we all have overlaid when we understand something about how people differ, um, and I'm sure talk a little bit more about that today as well, um, how we can sort of channel those into really supporting psychological wellness and helping people to fulfil their potential, whatever that may mean for them. Um, I also very keen to always draw on different levels of explanation in the work that I do. So drawing on the mainstream psychological literature, but also adjacent fields like neuroscience and business, um, and even at times the arts, um, so that we get a, a really comprehensive understanding. Um, probably also helpful just to explain a bit about my journey into psychology, which is probably a, a, bit, a little bit less orthodox than um, maybe some. So I actually started working in a school um, supporting uh, young people with a range of emotional, behavioural um, and learning difficulties before then moving in-house uh, to work in organisational development and learning and development and, and HR. And I think through that journey, it just really struck me that actually if we can apply psychology effectively in some of these very mainstream contexts within society, so whether that's education or, or the world of work, and both at the level of the individual themselves, but also that broader system, then actually we can have such a profound impact and we maybe reduce the need for more intensive, whether it's educational or clinical interventions, um, because I think well-being really does boil down to how we make sense of our world and the experiences that, that we have. Um, so that's for me where the learning piece comes in and why I'm, I'm so passionate about it specifically, because I think if we give people an understanding of psychology and help them to understand how it applies to them and their relationships with others, then we really empower them to find meaning and fulfill their individual potential again, whatever that may look like for, for them. I love that description. Um, oh, for several reasons. Uh, I just really enjoyed listening to that. The, the, you know, people in a system is really important. Um, I think so many of the solutions bandied about neglect either the fact that there are systemic challenges that people face, part of the system they're in, or they're aimed at an organization without considering the differences between 
people, the individual differences, the things that make us who we are. And, and I really agree with your philosophy of helping people understand more about themselves and more about uh, psychology so that they can do something with it. That's really important. Absolutely. It's incredibly powerful, I think, when you start to really immerse yourself in the insights that come from the psychological literature and the evidence base and actually just helping people to access that and really apply it and understand what it means for the way that we all live our lives. Um, yeah, really feels like it's at the heart of what psychology should should be. Absolutely. And I was thinking about my own experience of working as a coaching psychologist that, you know, the the insights that people get are when they're able to marry what the science says with what they do in their lives effect and they can they can make the changes that they want um, but they're doing it uh, with some guidance but but also using methods or processes or however you want to describe it but but that actually work and um, that's what I find really fulfilling in the work that I do Absolutely. And I think, again, you're absolutely right, Richard, that that sort of evidence base, that ensuring that we're disseminating scientifically sound information to, to the people that can benefit from this, um, I think, again, is, is what means that I, I get a huge amount of satisfaction out, out of the work that, that I can do. So the the, um, the bigger picture here is, is a chat about um, two topics that... Um, I think are really interlinked. One is what we can do to help people increase their self-awareness, know, know more about themselves, but how by increasing our self-awareness, we can maybe minimize the risk of some negative outcomes at work. And, and the one I wanted to talk to you about was something that we refer to as derailment. Um, so the logic here being the more we know about ourselves, the lower the risk of derailment, but there's a lot going on beneath the skin of that statement. So maybe we could start by talking a little bit about what we mean by, by self-awareness. When you hear that phrase, what, what occurs to you? Sure. So um, self-awareness, I think broadly we can define as having insight and accurate insight at that, which I'd, I'd like to emphasize probably straight away into our internal states, into how we interact with the world around us and the relationships that we form and our personal qualities. So everything that makes us who we are. Um, and I think maybe just to unpack that a little bit more. So already emphasize the word accuracy. Um, so whether our view of self aligns with how other people might perceive us. Um, again, not to say that one is more accurate than the other, but helpful that there's some level of, uh, I think, agreement or, or consensus there. And if there isn't, it maybe suggests there's something else going on that we may want to, to dig into a little bit more. Um, when I talk about internal states, so that might be awareness of our own thoughts, of our feelings, of what we want and need and what's important to us, and even our own physiological state, which, um, again, is a very helpful part of the, the, the picture. Um, and then there's also this emphasis on an awareness of ourself in the context of our external world. So the impact that we're having on others, the extent to which maybe our behaviour is aligned with the norms of a particular context and the qualities of the relationships that we're, we're forming and, and maintaining with other people. There's a lot going on there, isn't there, there, when we talk about <laughs> self-awareness? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of work someone might need to do to increase it. 
Absolutely. Um, and I think probably helpful if we also just talk about some of the qualities that we can reflect on, which make us who we are, essentially, and can sometimes influence these factors quite, quite profoundly. Um, so the first one is probably understanding our personality preferences. Um, and again, maybe just if we start with what we mean by, by personality. So our personality are our behavioural preferences or, or tendencies that tend to influence our behaviour day to day, um, usually as a product of our genetics and also our experiences throughout the course of our life and everything that we've, we've learned through those experiences. They're pretty stable, but having said that, they can change, particularly when we face more significant life events or, or experiences. So a nice example of this would be something like introversion or extroversion, which most people can sort of identify with, um, but really helpful to view that on a scale rather than it being one or the other. So if we've got at one end of the, the scale, maybe somebody that's incredibly gregarious and really likes being with people all of the time, and then at the other end, maybe somebody that's far more introverted in their communication style and likes lots of time on their own and likes to reflect and make sense of the things that they've experienced. Most people will be somewhere between those two poles. Um, so again, it's, it's a, a scale and a continuum rather than an either or an all. Um, and I think really importantly, as we start to talk about self-awareness, our personality influences, but it doesn't dictate our behaviour. So we can all behave in a way that sits outside of our more natural tendencies and preferences. This is a really important point. I think that this comes up in, in, in coaching conversations all the time that, you know, taking ownership and responsibility for our behaviour rather than saying, this is how I am. You know, everyone needs to accept me because this is my personality. When in fact we can say, well, that's that's your comfort zone, but your behavior itself, you can decide what to do and what not to do. And there's an important distinction between the two, isn't there? Absolutely. Um, I think comfort zone is a really nice way of putting it because it can feel initially at least quite uncomfortable if we push ourselves to behave in a way that's contrary to our, our more natural or inherent tendencies. Um, so I think a really good example of this is something like public speaking and presenting, which again, I'm sure a number of people can identify with can be, be tough, um, particularly perhaps if you're more on the introverted end of the, the scale. But it doesn't mean for a minute that if you don't push yourself outside of your comfort zone and maybe the behaviours that come more naturally to you, that you can't acquire the skills um, and maybe learn some very helpful techniques that will support you to perform incredibly effectively in that context. So our personality does not dictate our behaviour, doesn't dictate our ability and actually, we can all learn skills and techniques and strategies that mean that we can adapt our natural preferences um, to take on whatever goal is important to us. So understanding our personality in one way enables us to change uh, in the sense of it's a starting point. It's not the end of the story once you understand, you know, what kind of flavor of personality you have. 
Exactly. Um, There's a really nice theory, actually, by a psychologist called Brian Little called free trait theory, which is the idea that actually we can all temporarily at least adapt and uh, actually even adopt traits that aren't naturally aligned with our our tendencies in the pursuit of personally meaningful goals um, and to achieve personally meaningful projects. Um, And I think that really just boils it down. If we're aware of what our preferences are and we learn how to manage those effectively, um, personality is never a, a blocker um, to us achieving what we want to achieve in our lives. Mm, that's really important. That's that's really, really important. So what else do we need to understand about ourselves, do you think, in addition to our, our personality? So I think a, a related area, but quite distinct to personality are, are our values. So what we hold is important um, and these guide us and they give our life meaning. So these may be personal values. They might be values that we relate specifically to work or maybe even to our own character. And they really serve as a bit of a compass in helping us to find the way in when we're making decisions or we're deciding how we might act. So I may have personal values that relate to something like being honest and having integrity. And that will help me to determine how I therefore may act in certain situations that perhaps challenge those those values. Um, And our values are very closely tied to our well-being. So where there's a match between what we do Um, or maybe the external demands placed uh, upon us and the way that we then act and whether that's in in accordance with our our values or not. Um, We know that when behaviour is in accordance with our values, it can actually increase people's sense of of well-being. So it's a really important quality and facet of of self that's important to to remain aware of. Um, It's also, I think, important to note that it's not set in concrete. So our values might evolve as we learn more about ourselves and the world. We may be prioritize them um, and maybe even decide that some values aren't actually as important to us over time as we perhaps felt they once were. Um, so it's it's not a finite exercise of working out what your values are and that's it forever. This is something that I think is very helpful to remain aware of throughout the, the course of our lives. And as listeners to this podcast will have heard me say, uh, one or two times before, it's also as important to not just know what your values are, but to live those values. So it's not an academic exercise. It's something that you bring to life on a regular basis. Absolutely. And I think the more they're front of mind in everything that we do and in the goals that we set ourselves, um, the more able we are to, to live a it live in a way and behave in a way that that is actually in accordance with our values and, and brings us a sense of, of well-being and meaning. And anything else you, you would suggest that our listeners, if they want to know more about themselves, should reflect on? Yeah, so I think there are probably two other areas that are helpful to, to mention. Um, one is what motivates us. So what is it that actually gets you out of bed in the morning? What really energizes and drives you, um, again, either in the work that you do or, or more generally in, in your life? Um, and motivation is a really interesting um, concept. It's linked to actual chemical changes in the brain, um, particularly when we do things that move us towards a goal or something that we need or hold as important. Um, and there are things that will obviously motivate most of us. So usually tied to what we need to survive. So money, for example, for most people will be motivating to some extent, at least because it helps us to buy food and keep our 
roof over our heads and, and make sure our loved ones are, are kept safe. But once we actually meet these more basic requirements, we start to see some really interesting individual differences in the factors that drive and energise people. So for somebody that might be interacting with colleagues and having social connection through the work that they do. For somebody else, it may be the opportunity to be creative. And for somebody else, it may be perhaps working towards targets that others have, have set for you. Um, and this links to our values, um, but we can actually also find there's an interesting dissonance there. So I might value an egalitarian approach to life and work and think that things like equity and equality are really important. But it may be that I actually can't help but find myself motivated by competing with others when I'm working mm-hmm. towards a, a target. Um, mm. Not not true of me, but a good example, I think, of some <laughs> of the dissonance we can sometimes experience. Absolutely. Um, so really helpful to, to reflect on what it is that motivates you as part of that sort of broad, rich tapestry of everything that, that makes us who we are. Um, and I think lastly, probably an awareness of our development areas. So related to the qualities that we've touched on so far, like personality and motivation in, in particular and, and our values, um, what are the strengths and what are potentially the development areas that we have in a, a given context or situation or when we're faced with a particular task. And we're really talking about ability here. So what we do well or, or perhaps not so well, um, which is influenced by all of those qualities we've talked through, but also our thinking style, um, our skills and the knowledge that we've acquired, and maybe even in some contexts, our physical capabilities. So how effectively you solve a maths problem or perform a particular sport or play an instrument or come up with creative new ideas. And I think really interestingly, development areas aren't necessarily just gaps or deficits in our abilities. They're not necessarily just things we haven't learned yet. Sometimes really interestingly, it can be our strengths that are quite problematic for us. So if you think about a time where maybe you've worked with someone that's very different to you, um, perhaps you're very introverted in your communication style and they're far more extroverted in their communication style. I'm sure you've found you've had to adapt your natural style to maybe meet them in, a, in the middle a little bit more than you, you might have done otherwise. Um, and we even see this in the context of something like problem solving. Sometimes people that are very, very good at solving quite linear problems with a single correct answer can find it far more challenging if they're faced with a um, far less clearly defined problem to solve, where actually the task is to come up with as many different solutions as possible. So in other words, what for us in one context might serve as a strength in another context may actually be slightly more problematic for us. Um, so with all of these qualities, with everything that makes us who we are, there really is no good or bad or, or right or wrong. And the qualities that serve us really well in one context may not necessarily serve us as well in another. So I think as we start to think about ourselves and we reflect on everything that makes us who we are, we can't remove the role of context or situation or the relationship that we're um managing as part of that picture it's it's not really helpful to think about ourselves in global terms and the qualities that we have as always being strengths or always being development areas this is really important isn't it because when we think about ourselves we necessarily do so in a in an oversimplified way 
we, we think about ourselves as um, being good at something or being able to do something or get along with people in a certain way. But it's it's quite a challenge sort of cognitively to think about my personality plus my values plus my motivational factors plus you know my entire self-concept how, how do i talk to myself about myself what do i believe to be true about myself so it sort of it sort of points to some of the reasons why it can be quite a challenge to build our self-awareness in a in a flexible way in a way that's actually going to be useful to us as opposed to the labels we sometimes pick up in the workplace specifically, or the labels that are applied to us and, and they stick with us over the longer term. And I, I've mentioned before the, the sheer volume of people that I've worked with over the years professionally who will hold on to these labels like, I'm no good with numbers, you know, and they've been told that maybe as a child, but it's, it's stayed with them and limited them much later in life. And it's, um, it's hampered them from the success they might have um, otherwise experienced or even just um, not contributed positively to their levels of happiness. So I guess that's a really long-winded way of saying there's so much going on here. It's no wonder sometimes that we, we neglect to reflect on ourselves this way. Absolutely. And it can be particularly challenging when we find ourselves in a stressful situation or maybe a situation we haven't encountered before. Um, and some of these more automatic ways of thinking, as you, as you say, Richard, some of the ideas that maybe have been planted for us in very formative stages of our development can just automatically um take some control over us or, or influence our behavior in ways that they may not do if we're not under the, the same level of stress or find ourselves in a, a situation we haven't encountered before. Um, so I think this is by no means an easy task. Um, and it's something that throughout the course of our life, I think it's helpful to work on. Um, I don't think anybody is the finished product. There's always more that we can learn um, and more that we can understand ab about ourselves. And our experiences change us. So the more that we learn in turn, the the, the more that we grow. Um, so it's a, an ongoing process, really, um, and can be very, very helpful to, to do this work with somebody else as well. It's not something that I think anybody has to, to do alone. No, and, and um, sometimes the objectivity of, of someone else, um, or maybe holding up that metaphorical mirror to allow someone to see themselves in a way that is uh, slightly more objective. We'll maybe uh, return to, you know, how we can build our awareness of these aspects of us. But we started um, talking about derailment at the, at the very beginning there. What, how would you describe what derailment actually means to, to the average person out there? Um, so I think probably to start with just a, a, a couple of sentences, really, that, that boil it down, and then we can, again, maybe just unpack it in a little bit more detail because it's quite a, a rich area. Um, so when we talk about derailment, we're generally talking about somebody's performance or their career progression or perhaps their well-being suffering as a consequence usually of that individual's behaviour. And quite often, as we've sort of alluded to in talking about self-awareness, that is due to a, a lack of, of accurate self-awareness. And there are usually some external pressures and factors that can play a role as well. Um, derailment is something that's particularly relevant in the leadership space um, because the stakes are so much higher. So if, if somebody's performance starts to 
suffer in a, a leadership context quite often it's not just the individual themselves that potentially pays the price of that but it is the, the people that report into them and their peers and potentially the organization at, at large um, so it's a, a really pertinent theme when we look at leadership specifically um, I think one thing that's probably helpful just to mention quite early on in our discussion is there's a lot of discussion in the literature about dark side traits um, and particularly concepts like the dark triad, uh, particularly in a boardroom context. And it's probably a separate podcast all in itself. It's an mm. incredibly rich area. Um, and whilst that absolutely can be an issue, so we're, we're talking about behaviours here that have sometimes been um, likened to things like narcissism um, or maybe a, a Machiavellian approach to, to leading and they can absolutely be an issue but they're not the only way it can manifest um, and quite frequently we can see far more benign examples of, of leadership derailment that are often simply about us overplaying what have actually been strengths for us in, in other contexts in the past. I, I think um, and you mentioned context earlier which is you know music to my ears context is so important that what worked for us well in one context may not work as well in another or may actually be the opposite of what's required from us. And of course, what we get rewarded for um, may encourage us to do more of that when more isn't exactly what's going to get us a good result. And, and as you said, we could overplay some of these things such that we become a bit inflexible or we respond in ways that the people around us don't necessarily appreciate. So those dark triads factors, I mean, I think that would be a really interesting conversation another time, but for the majority of people, we're talking about the things that aren't associated with, you know, as the phrase goes, snakes and suits, but, yeah. but more the everyday right? And, and it's not something that happens, starts on a Monday and ends on a Friday. This is a, um, a sort of a longer term journey, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think it's tapping into a number of things you've, you've mentioned, Richard. So there's um, a concept in the literature called lopsided leadership, um, which I, th I think is, is wonderfully visual. It just sort of <laughs> brings to mind this idea of, of somebody perhaps um, leaning far too too much to one side, but that's actually a, a, a nice a nice representation of what we're getting at. And the idea here is actually because we've got a very strong preference for one pole on the continuum of a personality trait, it can sometimes prevent us from benefiting from the other pole. So we take a sort of one size fits all approach to the way that we lead. Um, and it can be a particular risk when somebody's progressed quickly without maybe honing a, a more rounded uh, approach to the way that they lead. Um, or, as you say, if somebody's been consistently reinforced for certain patterns of behaviour that are absolutely strengths in some contexts, they can become a sort of go-to approach in every situation. And when we talk again about leadership specifically, usually one of the challenges is the range of situations that you need to manage, the complexity of the decisions that you're needing to make mean that rarely is one approach going to fit every single one of those contexts. And it's actually about benefiting from a wider behavioural repertoire than perhaps may have been the case for you uh, earlier on in your career. And of course, even if it's not the, now the 
you know, now the context in this place has changed, people do move between organizational contexts. And what might have been rewarded in one business could actually be really, really frowned upon in, a, in another uh, business. And when professionals move, understanding the difference in that context is really important so that you can be as successful in navigating that situation as possible. Absolutely. So I think it's we've we've talked quite a bit about self-awareness, but I think it's also awareness of our environment and awareness of the impact that we have on that environment um, and the, the people within it um, that's probably critical to, to getting this right. So if derailment is a an experience and it's not a Monday to Friday experience, how would I know if I was either at risk of derailment or I was hurtling towards that as a, a negative outcome? So there are individual differences in what we might see as some of the, the common indicators of, of derailment or perhaps that, that being a risk for people. But generally, at least initially um, in process, we tend to see people actually exaggerate their behavioural preferences or, or overplay their strengths. So we might see people really behaving in a way that's out of keeping with the, the context or the demands of the situation. Um, so if we took an example of somebody that perhaps is very comfortable to challenge challenge others um, and to raise when they don't agree. Perhaps they're the voice that actually has um, helped to break down things like groupthink in the past because they always say what they, they feel in a, a, a particular situation. Um, and I'm sure you can sort of imagine how that could be very, very helpful from a leadership perspective. So again, a, a strength in its own right. But actually, if that individual finds themselves um, perhaps de derailing or starting to derail, they may start to see battles where there aren't any. Uh, they perhaps may challenge when it's not appropriate for them to do so, or maybe even challenge when they don't actually themselves have a reason to challenge. So we can really start to see some quite extreme expressions of um, some of, as I say, the, these behaviour patterns that in certain contexts in the past would have been would have been strengths. Um, and that's often because they served us very well before, uh, as well as being reinforced. When we can find ourselves in a, a new situation that we maybe haven't encountered before, or perhaps just under the demands of a more challenging role, um, the stress of that situation that we experience can sometimes mean we actually go back to the behaviours that have worked well for us in the past. So we may also notice some early indications of stress um, in ourselves, or we may notice them in others who are, are going through this. So particularly if we start to feel the demands that we're faced with outweigh our ability to cope, um, we might notice changes in our mood or thinking patterns, um, or maybe diet or, or sleep or energy levels. But I think really importantly, stress is very much about perceptions. So we can sometimes find that someone's derailing or starting to derail simply because they perceive that they have deficits or perhaps perceive that things are more challenging for them than maybe might actually be the case. Um, 
I think maybe at the other end of the spectrum, we can also sometimes see that somebody's confidence starts to outweigh their competence. So we might notice issues with their performance. Maybe they start to make poor decisions. Maybe they struggle to adapt to change or they're missing targets or failing to deliver on objectives and maybe even damaging their relationship with others. So there can be different indications of of derailment. And again, the, the rich tapestry of everything that makes you who you are will determine how it how it starts to play out. The indicators point is a very interesting one to me um, because of the varied nature of what gets measured in organizations. And I've encountered environments where professionals would be rated highly, um, but only because some of the interpersonal things aren't being measured. And, um, or maybe they're, they're turning a blind eye to the interpersonal side of things because they're hitting certain targets. It strikes me that's um, a fast track to derailment because you're not supporting someone or even challenging their inappropriate behavior because they are helping the organization in another way. Absolutely. And I think there's definitely a role for organizations in mitigating the risk of derailment very much along those lines as well. So if we're missing some of those fundamental measures, um, such as how somebody's interacting with maybe the people that report into them or, or their peers or colleagues, um, we're really missing an important part of the picture. Um, I think another aspect as well that's probably important to to raise is for some people, they may internalise a lot of the difficulties that they're experiencing. Um, which can be particularly problematic when it comes to that individual's well-being. So this isn't just about performance. This can have quite, quite profound impacts on, on somebody's um, ability to, to cope and the quality of, of their life. And actually, if all of that is being internalised rather than externalised, again, I think if, if there isn't the self-awareness there and the ability to manage self effectively, um, some quite problematic um, issues can go unnoticed for for quite a long time. And so we might therefore have undesirable outcomes that are about career trajectory or even employment status. We might have negative outcomes that are about the impact on other people. And we might have outcomes that are about our our own health, whether that's um, mental health or physical health or both. So obviously, this is an outcome we want to avoid, if at all possible. What, what's to be done? How, how can we ensure that fewer people end up in this situation from, from your perspective? So I think self-awareness is, is definitely a fundamental part of um, mitigating and identifying some of the early warning signs of, of derailment. Um, derailment is not inevitable. Um, if we identify and understand the signs early on and we do something about it, we can absolutely stop it from having the negative effects that we've, we've talked through um, so far today. Um, so I think at the individual level, that's putting work into understanding more about ourselves and also learning to cope with low levels of stress for short periods of time. Um, so stress is a, a really interesting theme, I think, just to unpack a little bit more um, and actually like to reframe stress as uh, actually a, a level of arousal within our nervous system. Um, which is is fundamentally what it is. And it's a physiological sign to us to act. Um, It's not always accurate, and that's a really important thing to to keep in mind. So quite frequently we might perceive a stressor or feel that we're not 
coping very well when actually that's not an accurate appraisal of, of what's going on for us or the qualities or, or assets or resources that we have at our disposal. Um, but actually, if we can keep our stress levels in check and we know how to direct our stress, we can actually use it to create an impetus to develop and problem solve. Um, and I think really interestingly, there's a, a chemical in the brain that's actually released when we experience low levels of stress for short periods of time. That's actually an essential part of the learning process but only if it's closely followed by us focusing on our, our attention on what we need to learn and remember for next time. And then we're following it by a period of rest and lower levels of arousal to help us to consolidate that learning. Um, and this is why we find that things like stretch assignments and outside of work, perhaps more challenging life experiences can sometimes result in the most profound leaps forward in terms of our self-development and growth, providing that they're coupled with personal reflection and processing and that we've got support around us to bolster our resources to, to respond effectively and keep our stress levels in check. Um, and I think that sort of highlights that the stress management piece is a, a key theme of what we can do to actually make sure this doesn't negatively impact us. Um, and this is also, I think, where there's a role for organisations. So how can we help people at a systemic level to understand how to respond to stress effectively, to, to build resilience, and also revisiting the behaviours that we're re reinforcing um, that actually can really start to be quite damaging um, to the way an organisation functions more broadly. So boiling this down, there's an element of learning more about ourselves so that we know what we can cope with and when we might need to get out of our comfort zone and what's healthy and effective coping looks like, but also what works for us, you know, what approaches are getting us a good result, what approaches or behaviors are having an impact on those around us that, that isn't appropriate or acceptable or even just helpful. And I think there's an overarching point, isn't there, that understanding that this is not just the one-off, it's the patterns and the cumulative effect that these things can have, um, which is why you know raising stress is a really important point it's not one bad day at the office is it it's the cumulative impact of being exposed to these things and having a lack of resources and coping strategies that really can result in a in a negative outcome versus the learning and the adaptation that you've really clearly outlined there Absolutely. Um, and I think it's the, the range of mechanisms that we can draw on to help us with that. And again, different things will speak to different people. So for somebody, it may be actually feedback from others that we trust um, can really help us, particularly over a longer period of time, to calibrate the accuracy of our self-awareness and to help us to look out for some of these behaviour patterns that could potentially start to become problematic for us if, if we don't do something. Um, and I think that can be particularly helpful, that aspect of feedback and social support, because when we are under stress, it's sometimes the, that point in time where actually it's harder for us to remain as aware of ourselves as we may be when everything is going well. Um, so the, the trick is actually to start to do a lot of this work when everything is okay, because actually we're bolstering ourselves and, and adding more to our toolkit so that when things do get tough, we've got more that we can draw on to, to help us work through. Um, I think coach, coaches as well are, are probably a, a really important thing to mention here, can be an incredibly helpful um, person to have in your life if, if you've got a coach that you're working with 
to just almost act as a, a bit of an enlightened witness to support you through this process of, of self-discovery and reflecting on your individual um, triggers and behavior patterns and how you can manage those more effectively. And I should throw in here as well, based on our listenership, um, a reminder that coaching isn't a panacea um, because someone's self-awareness could be through the roof. But if the organization itself does not look after factors like good job design and uh, acceptable manager behaviors and roots out and challenges behaviors that aren't any good, you know, self-awareness is going to get you so far, right? So just like lots of these things, it's as part of a system. And um, coaching, yes, I'll agree with you. Coaching can be a fantastic idea, but in in context. And it's almost unhelpful for someone to keep returning to a context that's toxic. And I think this is where our values come in. So actually, if we really understand what's important to us, what gives our lives meaning, um, what acts as our compass, particularly in times of difficulty, actually. And again, if we've done this work before we find ourselves in those um, uh, more challenging contexts, then we're, we're um, strengthened in our ability to, to respond. Um, but actually, we can use our values as a guiding light to decide what situations we want to, to stay in and where the way that we're living our life is serving us well or maybe where there's an opportunity for for change and that's not always about changing ourselves sometimes that's about changing the environment that we're in absolutely so you've you've said um that coaching great for people to improve their self-awareness but not everyone can can work with a coach so feedback from others and if we can remain open to that feedback even when it stings or it doesn't sit nicely with the preconceived views we have of ourselves that can be very helpful what else could each of us do to build our self-awareness so there's a lot we can do i think in more of a self-directed sense so activities like journaling can be incredibly helpful um, there's something about externalizing our thinking and giving ourselves maybe a defined amount of time each day to just reflect on what's happened to us and how we've responded um, and can result in quite profound leaps forward in terms of our insight into who we are and, and everything that we do. Um, I think another thing to probably mention on uh, actually managing the um, impact of stress on us is learning how to better control our attention and the internal states that, that we experience. So we can actually find a way of making sure that when we do experience a stress response, we're focusing it on the information that we can learn and what we may be able to then use in the future to help us be more resilient. And activities like mindfulness, meditation, um, as well as healthy diet and exercise can, can be really helpful here. We can train our attention um, to really focus in on what's going to to bring us greater psychological wellness. Um, I think the other thing is to better understand where we as an individual sit in terms of our natural levels of um, arousal of the nervous system. So people, again, will differ in this sense. For some, they may be generally far more relaxed and, and calm. For others, maybe um, slightly more responsive to, to stress and, and 
um, difficult life circumstances. So if you know that perhaps you're slightly more on the high end of, of that scale, um, things like relaxation techniques can be very, very helpful in just keeping your stress levels in check, which in turn will help you to remain more aware of, of your behaviour and, and make sure there's not a damaging impact of challenging uh, events on your well-being. Um, and lastly, for anyone that's really interested, there are a number of self-report questionnaires that we can complete that give us insight into uh, qualities like personality um, and motivation as well. Um, and understanding where we sit using one of those objective questionnaires can just help to structure our insight in a, may, in a way that we perhaps wouldn't be able to, to structure it without going through um, a, a questionnaire like that. Um, probably worth me mentioning at this point that not all of those questionnaires are created equal. Um, you just beat me to it. <laughs> <laughs> some are, are far more um, rigorous and scientifically based and objective than others. Um, but they are self-report. There's no good or bad. There's no right or wrong. You can't fail one. Um, and I'd recommend anybody that is interested, there's a, a wonderful register that's published by the British Psychological Society, um, which cites a number of different practitioners that have had training to use these types of tools and can support with giving you feedback um, on them. Um, there's usually a cost associated with doing that, so probably worth, worth a mention at this stage, but can be a very helpful process to just gain a bit more insight into your um, natural qualities. And that is an extremely important point that what you take from these assessments is almost as important as everything else to do with it. Because if you see yourself in categorical black and white terms, it's not going to help you. If you wear these outputs as a label that can never be changed, it's not going to help you. So you, you're absolutely correct. The output from a good quality scientific questionnaire gives you terminology you can use about yourself and helps you understand the extent to which these aspects of personality are lived by you. But it also doesn't tell you what to do next. And that's what's really important. It's personality in context. And when is it useful for me to turn down the dial on that and turn up the dial on that, to, to use a bit of a, a metaphor? Um, but it is much easier to, to, to use those than it is to stare at a blank sheet of paper uh, marked, what is your personality? Now, that's really difficult for us all to do. Absolutely. The, the power of having a framework and more importantly, a framework that we know is evidence based and is grounded in contemporary understanding of, of these different qualities that, that make us who we are. Um, but I think, as you've said, Richard, that the, the key point is to use those insights as a starting point for and how do I want to manage myself more effectively, given what's important to me, given what I value, given what brings meaning to my life. Um, I think far too frequently, particularly in a workplace setting, uh, we almost assume that there's a, a common goal of it's about progression or it's about um, the, the, the next big role or um, achieving stability or whatever that looks like in, in your particular context. And I think sometimes just challenging that and going back to basics of what do we want in our lives? What does meaning look like for us can be a really helpful guiding light with making sure we're only um, flexing the parts of our behaviour that, that we're actually um, uh, wanting to, to flex and are, are going to, to serve us well in terms of broader well-being. So a deep breath. I'm going to try, try and summarise <laughs> some of those really key points. I mean, 
understanding more about ourselves is, is a multi-stage process because there's so much going on beneath the surface, different perspectives we can take about abilities, motivation factors, and all of that stuff. We want to minimize the chance of us experiencing derailment. And for most people, that will be because of overplaying their strengths or using strengths in, in a context where that's just not helpful. And becoming inflexible around that, not changing their approach. Um, and so there is an eventual negative outcome or outcomes. And so what we want to do is understand how we can flex to meet the needs of the context and the people around us, rather than just keep doing the same things over and over. And I think I'm paraphrasing you accurately when you say self-awareness is a journey. Um, this is something that we should ideally keep an eye on rather than Sometimes, you know, I've completed a leadership program, therefore <laughs> I'm self-aware, but actually all of our, all of our um, experiences contribute to that. So keeping an eye on how we're changing and growing on an ongoing basis is just as important as those big ticket development opportunities that we get from time to time. Absolutely. I think that's a, a really good summary. Um, and I'd also just really encourage people to revisit what we think about when we think about development areas and strengths. Um, there are, are no qualities that, that I can think of that we universally in every single situation or um, encounter with a, another human being be universally strengths or development areas. Um, it's always contextual. So actually just keeping that in mind, and, and I think that really then just hammers home this point of the, the value of remaining aware over the longer term and that it really is a, a journey. It's not something I think anybody um, completely um, can, can tick off or say that it has been achieved completely. We, we need to remain aware. Fantastic. I could talk about this for hours. I have an eye on the clock though, so I think it's probably time to wrap up. I would love if our listeners got in touch with questions or comments or um, sharing their own experience if they would like to, because there's a lot to this topic. So if you'd like, you can send us an email. Uh, the email address is podcast at worklifepsych.com. And I know it's working because I just checked it the other day. Um, so you can contact us uh, there and send us your questions, your thoughts, your feedback. Um, I'll pass on questions uh, to Lucy if you address them that way, and we can address them in a future episode. Lucy, for now, thank you so much for joining me. I really enjoyed talking to you about this. Um, your experience and expertise have, have really come through. So I really, really appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Richard. And thanks to everyone out there who's listening. Thanks for downloading this episode of My Pocket Psych. To get in touch with questions and feedback, you can tweet us at worklifepsych or leave us a message on the contact form at www.worklifepsych.com contact. Thanks for listening.